Hear now as I read for you and preach from Acts chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, we went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of, the, of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am, if I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss to how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this account that you have preserved and presented and now proclaimed before us of the work of your Son in his kingdom being manifested 
in the early church, being manifested in the apostles, being manifested in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. We pray that we would hear, that we would be um, cautioned, that we would be convicted, and that we would be encouraged and comforted to the power of Jesus Christ in his reign by the meditation and consideration of this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we come to the end of October, this is a common time for us. I know that in the existence of this congregation, I usually try to highlight in some way that this is the Reformation Day weekend. This is a time that the church has historically Even beyond the Reformation, this particular weekend and particularly on November 1st is a time when the church has been encouraged to look at our church fathers and look at what the Lord has done in their lives. It's, as you may know, in November 1st, it's called All Saints Days or All Souls Days. That is to think of those who have gone before us, the souls of God's people who have gone before us and have proclaimed and witnessed to the power of Jesus Christ. Now, in particular, tomorrow we also celebrate that 505 years ago that Martin Luther, um, through the nailing on of the, the 95 Theses, had started the German Reformation. And when we consider all of these particular stories, and I know that recently at Mary's, the kids had done stories, um, both good and bad guys of the Reformation, um, remembering the things again that the Lord has done. There's usually at least three particular themes that we think about, if not countless more, when we think about the Reformation. And I would say, first of all, we would think about, well, let me ask you, I meant to admit it in the form of a question, what would be the thing that is important for us to remember about the Reformation? What would be one of the first primary themes? Why is it important for us to remember what happened 505 years ago or different stages throughout the history of the church? Men are not infallible, so the, the teaching and the understanding that men are weak and that they should not be the ones making the greatest amount of authority or having the greatest amount of authority in the church, that Christ the King is. What else? But instead, Sola Scriptura the Bible. Right. The Word of God is central. I got to meet with a prospective couple for... Um, visiting the church, and they said that the primary thing for them is the authority of the Scripture, and that they are encouraged from what they have seen thus far in their visits, that Scripture alone is our primary authority, um, which is the word of our King Jesus Christ. What else? Works will not save you. Works will not save you. Again, another teaching, just that the just shall live by faith. Once undone event, it's a continual reformation. Right, semper reform, reformamanda, as I said, <laughs> always reforming. Well, the three categories that I wanted to highlight, which you've covered most of them, is that the first thing that we would re- generally remember about the Reformation is the teaching, the substance of truth that it is center to what we believe, that it is God's truth and not man's truth that makes up what we believe and what actually propels the church. So it had a lot to do with the particular people's teaching and highlighting and pointing back to Jesus Christ, pointing back to the Word of God, hence the word reformation, to reform the church back to the central authority of Jesus Christ. And in, along with that, we would hear stories about their lives, not only in what they taught, but also in how they lived and matched that in how they lived. And so we celebrate these people who have gone before us as being a verbal and personal testimony to us of the power of Jesus Christ and his truth. Secondly, we often hear stories of their suffering. It's usually a component that matches along it as the truth is being proclaimed what normally comes along with it, and hopefully you're starting to see that very clearly here at the end of Acts, is that there's an antithesis and there's going to be suffering, and it's usually at the hands of certain authorities. 
both ecclesiastical and also political authorities. And it's a continual and common theme that we see it goes all the way back to the cross and beyond. That is something that is just written in history and in the whole process of life that when truth is proclaimed, it is going to be conflicting with Satan and the principles of sin and death. So we see authorities, we see suffering. And then thirdly, again, this is just for today's purposes, there's all kinds of categories. We often see that when we think about the stories of the Reformation, we often see the shame of those particular authorities. We see the foolishness of what was believed. When we think about particularly, we think about Martin Luther, we think about when he visited Rome and the things that he saw. And when we hear those stories or watch the movie and we think about the things that he encountered, we would think, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. And that's a good reason. I'm glad that we think that it's absolutely ridiculous. It is very shameful, the things that the church had done. Now, one of the things that we need to be careful of is that probably in a couple generations, people will probably look back to us as we are continuing to reform into hopefully greater faithfulness as Jesus' kingdom is furthering more and more. Hopefully, they will look back and they will be reformed to know that even we have things that are shameful to us even today. And so shame is a big part of what we actually celebrate during the Reformation. We may not think about it that way, that we would actually celebrate shame, but I would contend, especially in light of the epistle reading today, is that we are to be looking forward to the shaming of wickedness. That in that judgment that Jesus is going to finalize at his coming, there will be shame against wickedness. But as we have been given, and so providentially so once again in our confession of faith, we are to look forward to it cautiously and with humility. Not to be thinking that we are something in of ourselves, but it's nothing but grace for us that that shame would not be placed upon us. So, To enter into my three points of what I want to highlight in this narrative, and and I hope that you all are gracious to me that you know it's it's difficult to preach from these kind of narratives, especially when there is a lot of interactivity and a lot of action going on, to bring it to a place where it is not just an instruction, but that that it's an encouraging sermon for you today. But I saw three particular themes in parallel to what I've just said that I see in this passage that I think is worthwhile to highlight for us as a teaching for us that I believe is a focal point that Luke has given to us in giving this particular passage to us today. One is that do you know Jesus in the declaration of his word? That's point number one. As we think about the centrality of the scriptures, I want us to highlight here and, and look at how the centrality of God's truth, and that includes his law, his promises and the prophetic promises of what is to come. So do you know Jesus in the declaration of his word? Because Paul here knows the word of God and he uses it in his ministry and without being equipped in the law of God and also the law of the land, which he knows how to legally, according to God's word, to interact with the law of the land, it is allowing him to be a faithful minister that he can not only proclaim faithfully, but that he can react faithfully when that opposition is there and that suffering is coming upon him. Secondly, do you trust Jesus and his authority over heaven and earth? Here we see in this particular moment, that Paul is entrusting himself into the hands of pagans. Is he trusting that Caesar is going to save him? Is his hope that Caesar is going to be the one that will win the day? How can Paul trust to give himself to appeal to Caesar? Well, he's appealing to Caesar because he knows the law. He knows the law of God, and he knows the promises of God. He knows that Caesar is not the ultimate authority. So when you consider your interactions with all your different types of authority, children, when you think about your interactions with your parents, do you trust God's authority through your parents, both in the good and the bad? Anybody in here have perfect parents? Raise your hand. 
Thank you, Joe. I appreciate you that raised hand. I see that hand. <laughs> I think he may have a little bit of a lapse there in his thinking. No, none of us have perfect parents. But God's perfect law tells us to obey and honor our parents. And so there is a dilemma there, but it is not one that he does not equip us in. And so it goes on from there. How many of us have perfect spouses, wives? How many of you have perfect husbands? How many of you have perfect employers, those who have your own businesses? I mean, Steve and Jonathan, you don't have employees yet, but do you anticipate that you will be, you know, if you do have employees, will you be perfect employers? (laughs) Of course not. We know that God has given structures of organization and order and authority of he's granted this over to imperfect men. And of course, you do not have anywhere on the face of God's earth where the appointment of authority in Christ's church through the the people of men, because as Kevin mentioned, that we are frail. We are not capable of being perfect. So in all of this account, do we trust Jesus in this? Do we trust his authority over heaven and earth? Paul had to entrust himself ultimately to Jesus to do the things that he was doing. He wasn't just using as an escape plan that he thought of at the last minute. No, he was because he was trusting in Christ that he could say the words that I appeal to Caesar. And then lastly, do you hope in Jesus' glory in the shaming of the wicked by the defeat of sin and death? Do you hope in shame? Now, that's a kind of a weird way to think about it. Not in the shame of ourselves. We are, thankfully, we are not those who to be. Those who trust in him, those who live by faith in Christ and his righteousness, we have no shame coming to us. But do we hope in the shaming of wickedness? We should. We should celebrate that that would be something to come and that it does even happen now, that it happens even in this day. And when I think about in city council, when you saw the contrast of those who were a little uncertain, and I don't want to judge their hearts or their intentions, but you saw the boldness of a man who was going to use his office to the fullest extent that he could to protect the innocent versus the others who were kind of like, well, let's just make sure that it's legal and we don't want to get sued. You can see a contrast there, and it was frankly shameful. For the others, and they all the other ones were sitting with their heads down. And the one who made a bold proclamation could stand, he had his head erect, that he knew that he was standing on truth, that he had nothing to be ashamed of, even if the world would shame him, even if there would be lawsuits to come, he was resting in the truth of what his office was to be for, in the truth that he is to submit to God instead of, of man. And so therefore, his boldness in contrast to their uncertainty did bring forth a shame. Not one that we would want to try to inflict upon people, but it is a reality and it is a wonderful thing, a wonderful thing when that contrast is there. So keep those particular themes in mind. And I want us to go back. I want to do a backdrop. And and I do ask that you would, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Matthew chapter 27. Because as we look at this particular passage, there's there's just so much echoing here of what's going on in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I know I've already referenced that multiple times, but in the Lord's providence, we keep seeing these things repeated. So I'm going to keep going back to the cross. I'm going to keep going back to the ministry of Jesus Christ when he's faced the cross on our behalf. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 11 I want to just read through here and make a few points so that when we go back and look at this passage in 25, that we can see these parallel themes. It says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, 
I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Here we see Jesus being the forerunner for us in this kind of interaction with the politics and the ecclesiastical authorities that are not doing the faithful thing. Here Jesus is proclaiming the truth. He is the central point of all of the gospel. And here is the primary question, is Jesus the king? And Jesus was willing to answer that. You have said so. It is the truth. He is the king. He could not deny that. And Jesus, by remaining silent on everything else, teaches us that that is the centrality of what he is there for, that Jesus is the king. Everything else didn't matter. All of the other false accusations, Jesus did not need to speak against them. He didn't have to figure out a way to try to convince them through that particular element that all that needed to be said had been said, and Pilate was amazed that his testimony was central, that was central to that. He is king. We see here that Pilate recognized that Jesus was innocent. He could see that there was a proclamation of him being king, but he could see that in his life that there was nothing here deserving death. So much that he did not want the judgment for crucifying Jesus. That he would wash his hands before the crowd. That he did fear God to that degree, or fear something to that degree, if, if anything just not to be proclaimed unjust, that he was trying to make a symbol that I am not going to be the one that will be having to answer for this man's blood. But then as we go to John chapter 19, if you would turn over to John 19, starting with verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he had made himself the Son of God. Now this is an interesting point here. There is a level of accuracy here. They are referencing Leviticus 24.16, that if there is anyone who would blaspheme God in such a way that they should be stoned, and to actually call them himself God, that would be a blasphemous thing. If any of you all hear me say, I am God, I am I'm being very blasphemous, and you, know, you, you might not get away with it, but you probably should stone me. <laughs> because that would be a very blasphemous thing. Now, Paul is aware of, I mean, Jesus is aware of Leviticus 24, and so is Paul. But we are aware of it, and we see this, you know, they actually have a point here. But Jesus is God. Now, I want to highlight this just as a kind of a side reference. Whenever you hear people debating whether or not that Jesus would proclaim that he is God, here is where they are actually accurate that Jesus was proclaiming to be God. And that even in this particular testimony, it is assuring us that, yes, that Jesus was making it clear that he is God. If he was not God, then he would be deserving the punishment that comes from Leviticus 24.16. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. We can tell that Pilate is he's very <laughs> he, easy to be going back and forth. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But again, Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So here they went from, if it's not going to work that we highlight our own law, then let us point out to you that he is calling himself king. 
You can see how the politics of that day is the same as the politics of today. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Arabic, Gabbatha. But it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And this is where the truth came out. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. We see the same kind of wrangling and pandering. We see the same kind of twisting, the false accusations. We see the same innocence, even more so in Jesus Christ and even in Paul. That Paul is willing to even be condemned if he is doing anything wrong. If there is something here in the law that would truly condemn him, he is more than happy to be put to death. Paul is reflecting and pointing to the glory of Jesus Christ when he stood before the cross. This is being displayed again as he is proclaiming Christ. And even Festus himself, as he is explaining to Agrippa, says that there is nothing here. There's a dispute about their own religion. The only thing that stands out is that he said that there was this Jesus who was dead, who Paul now asserts to be alive. That even in this particular moment, Festus is being a proclaimer of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As he is presenting the case of Paul before Agrippa, it's still the center highlight that Jesus is king, that Jesus is the one with authority. It is still the central highlight that Paul is innocent just as Christ is innocent. But Paul is mastering his ministry by knowing his, the word of God and also knowing his audience, knowing the laws that are around him. So as we go forward in our own callings in ministry, let us not assume that we can go through any kind of conflict that will come against anyone who proclaims the truth unless we are rooted in the word of God. So do you trust Jesus in his word? Does the church today trust Jesus in his word? Do we love the word and meditate upon the word and equip ourselves in the word that we think that we can do anything? And if you think about what your calling is in any area in the jurisdiction of your life, it is ultimately to proclaim Christ. Whether it's a parent to a child or spouses to each other or in your workplace or here in the church, we are to proclaim Christ. But if we are not equipped, we will falter. Because Satan will come after us in every one of those endeavors. And how we respond will, will be based upon whether we respond in faithfulness according to his word or unfaithfulness. So we should be equipped and trust his word. We see Paul, again, making that to be his primary example to us, that he is holding on to truth, that there is nothing that can be thrown against him because he is holding on to God's word. We're also to see here and to understand where all of these authorities are coming from. We are to trust Jesus in his authority over all things. We have to remember in this account and also the account as Jesus is standing before Pilate that we see in Mark chapter 12. Again, I've already referenced this before, but it's important to highlight this as we see these repetitive things. In Mark chapter 12, it says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and look at and Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Just as Pilate marveled at how Jesus was able to respond the right way under the questioning and in that trial, Jesus again was able to teach them about how to perceive authority on this earth 
in the correct manner by showing this balance. Consider what actually belongs to Caesar in his jurisdiction, and then consider God and his reign and who he is, and then you respond accordingly to that. And then we remember just moments ago that Jesus had to remind Pilate that even the authority that he had was only granted to him by himself. Think of that tremendous, I mean, none of us have that ability. I mean, we might barely do that when we were like we're standing before representatives of Congress. We could say, well, you wouldn't be in office if it wasn't for all of us voting for you. You actually work for us. We could do something like that. But here, this overarching authority that Jesus had to stand before Pilate and said, you wouldn't even be sitting there if it wasn't for me. I wonder how Pilate just dwelled on that. For like, Whoa, <laughs> what is he saying? How is that so? We need to have those words resonate in our mind over and over again that all authority in our life, in every jurisdiction of life, has been given to us from above. And then we should hear when we understand here now, when Paul is standing here and he says that I appeal to Caesar, we can go and look at the book of Romans, which is what is ultimately the path of where Paul is wanting his ministry to go by the promise of Jesus Christ. He says in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Again, echoing what Jesus had taught, Paul is thinking about the very words of Christ as he is standing before other authorities. He can trust Christ by entrusting himself into Caesar because he understands the jurisdiction that belongs to Caesar. And so he is giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but his hope rests in Christ and his authority. So he is giving to God what belongs to God. Do we have that kind of trust today as we look at our politics? I don't think that they're any crazier or any better than that particular age. When we look at what's going on, I know Jennifer during our prayer time today, when we hear all about all the bad news, and it is bad news that comes from all the things on the news, but do we rest and hope and say, yeah, it's, it might be tough, you know, we might need to, you know, maybe ration up our food a little bit. But Jesus is over this. He will prevail. We have no reason to fear. Can we entrust ourselves in that kind of system? Again, I have told you before that people have asked me, you know, when you're standing in front of the abortion mill, why not just take the abortion mill out? <laughs> if they're doing that particular thing, they're harming children, just take them all out. And like, you know, on a reasonable level, that seems to be somewhat reasonable, but that is not entrusting God's authority over all the jurisdictions that God has instituted on this land. That there is a process. There is a way that we go about that we have to submit ourselves in patience to the authorities that God has instituted, even when he puts wicked and crazy and bumbling and murderous authorities in office. Can we trust Jesus that he knows what he's doing when he has instituted these authorities to be over us? And that's something that needs to resonate in our minds in every jurisdiction in our life. It doesn't mean that we remain silent. It doesn't mean that we obey everything they say because we are not to obey Men, when they teach us to go against God, we know that there is limitations to that authority. But how do you know those limitations? How do you know what their jurisdictions are? What is the answer? The Word of God. He has given us a teaching and understanding of knowing at least limitations. He doesn't give us everything and how things should be governed and every law that should be passed. But he has taught us in his word how to understand jurisdictions, how to understand authorities, the authorities that he has put in office. And we are to respond 
accordingly. When we think about the reformers, they took great strides of trying to give the right kind of respect. They didn't do it perfectly. I mean, Luther is the one that we are thinking about this weekend. And I mean, he did some tremendous things, but then you're like, man, he kind of crossed the line on that one. But then he did a really good job of doing that crossing of the line. It was really funny. (laughs) There's a lot of different ways that we can look back, and there are lines crossed in all of our lives. But we can see that they tried to bind themselves as best as they could in their season and in their own maturity and even in their own weakness to try to abide by the authority distinctions that God has taught in his word. But then lastly... We see here in the last chapter here, we see Agrippa and Bernice. There's a lot here. I, I probably could even could do a study on this for a long time, but does anybody know who Agrippa is? Who is Agrippa related to here? Herod? Yes. How, how does he relate it to Herod? Didn't they grow up in the same household or something? Well, he, this particular Agrippa is, is likely the grandson, I think, of Herod, Agrippa the first. He's even though this is Agrippa the second, this is the grandson. I think there's a, another one in between. And so the first Herod, this is the, the relative, this is the grandson, from what I understand, of the Herod that is the one that Jesus is dealing with when he was born. Does anybody know who Bernice is here? Who's this Bernice woman that's hanging out with Agrippa? Anybody wonder? It is his sister. They have the same. Mother and or same father. I think they maybe have the same mother and father. I'm not 100% sure about that, but they are brother and sister. Now, the interesting thing is, and doesn't point it out here, but we do have Josephus' account, and Josephus is known to be fairly accurate that this was likely an incestuous relationship, that it was a brother and sister, and it was an incestuous romantic relationship. And so there is this very strange scenario here, and it even points out that Luke says that when they did come to stand before Paul, that they had all of this pomp and circumstance. They had military tribunals. And so this earthly glory of their earthly authority was also not so much in this particular presentation, wasn't supposed to be presented to us so we can go, oh, man, poor Paul. This is a, a, just a nasty situation. This would be like us going to Washington and having to stand before some people in Washington and you, and you just you know all the backstories. You've, you've heard all of the, the scandal and you think, you know, here are Christians having to stand before really some pretty nasty individuals and to submit to their particular authority. It was very much a shameful thing. And in a way, it... it, it, it Satan looks at it and it's like, look at the poor shame on Paul that he has to stand before these people. But I believe that Luke is proclaiming this in a way for us to understand that as Paul is standing before these authorities, it is really shame on them. That Jesus is being proclaimed here, that Jesus' ministry is going on, that this one man, Paul, who is carrying the message, is being able to present forth the gospel all the way to Rome and all of these earthly authorities, all of the people who are ultimately wicked and going against God are all under the movement and plan of what God has intended. They're being employed by the providence of God to carry out the ministry of God. Now, I'm not making this up. Let us look forward to this shame by looking at what God's word says about this. First of all, let us remember what Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, he canceled out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is Colossians chapter 2. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Jesus went to the cross, it was supposed to be a symbol of shame. It was supposed to be something that was bringing shame upon him. It was the lowest way to be executed. But by the teaching of Paul to the church in Colossae, it is the very cross 
that actually puts them to shame. That when Jesus did this, he canceled the record of debt, all of the accusations that were actually due to us, and all of the legal demands, he set aside nailing it to the cross. So he actually uses the shameful tool to put shame upon who? The rulers and authorities. And he triumphs over them. We see this brought forth even deeper with 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." If you go and you look at how often shame is talked about in the New Testament, it is a weapon that God uses against his enemies. It says in 1 Corinthians, again, Paul writing this letter in 1st chapter, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Yes, our God, Jesus Christ, is about the shaming of the wicked. And we are to celebrate that. Anytime we speak of his judgment, we want it to be that it is shameful that the things that the judgment is pouring poured upon are being shamed. And so whenever we have a presentation before us, and brothers and sisters, today there, there's plenty of display of shame in the public arena. And many of us, when we look at that, we go, oh no, it's just horrible. And it is horrible, but isn't it sweet? Can you believe this? And I would use words like this. Isn't it sweet that things that are shameful are shamed? They should be shameful. And the more we see that contrast, that's one of the great things about the Reformation is that we see the great antithesis against the truth of God in all of its nasty earthly glory, in all of its shame. Now, as we learned in the teaching from our confession, we are to be very careful. And even in this particular passage, look at what Peter tells us here, or the passage I read before. It says that we are to deal with things with gentleness and respect. When we are dealing with those that who is going to put to shame? God will put them to shame. What did Jesus do to bring forth any kind of shame at that moment at the crucifixion upon his accusers or upon Pilate? He did not say anything other than he was king and that he had all authority. He had plenty of things that he could have said about Pilate. He had plenty of things. He could have just stood there with a list of all of his accusers, of everything that he knows about them. But in that particular moment, he just did not speak. Paul here could be going to, to a certain degree of a, of a way to respond to Agrippa and Bernice. If Josepha knew this, probably Paul did too about their particular relationship, if that is the truth. Paul doesn't go there. He continues to respond to Agrippa and Bernice with respect. And even later on, Agrippa will say, what, are you trying to convince me to be a Christian? And he's like, maybe. (laughs) Working on that. Paul has a center focus in his ministry. His focus is not to bring shame. His focus is to point to Jesus Christ and let Jesus Christ and his providence and even his word. It is true that when we proclaim the word of God, when we teach the word of God, when we teach truth in the public square, it may be that what would bring shame to other people and their sin. But it's not because we are finagling ways to bring shame. It's not because it's our intent to make them feel bad or to bring shame upon them. But when they contrast the word of God, it will be shameful. In Titus chapter 2, again, Paul writing to Titus, Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. 
Show yourself in all respects to be model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Again, just like Paul, here we see that we are to be in the Word, to understand our jurisdictions, to understand our behavior, to be conformed into the obedience of Jesus Christ in our ministry. But then it says, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Even when we show each other respect, when we show the wicked respect, rather, when we are standing before those who are going against God and we are having self-control in how we speak and how we are making sure that we are conformed to the word of God with integrity and dignity and sound speech, that that hope, that we can have hope, that when we treat, each, treat them with that manner, that they would be put to shame because of their contrast against the reign of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul in Romans chapter 12, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you hear what I'm saying? That we are to hope in shame, but who is going to present the shame? Jesus will present the shame. When we point to his word that's in contrast to their actions, it will be Jesus' words that will bring about the shame of wickedness. And we should delight in that. We should delight that wickedness would be known to be shameful, that we wouldn't try to cover it up like they're doing again at the Revoice conference where they're trying to figure out ways to to help people in their sinful behavior to be accepted so they don't feel shamed. Once again, people who are proclaiming to be of Christ are trying to cover up the shame that comes when God's word contrasts their sinful behavior doesn't mean that we treat them harshly and unkindly, but we point them back to God's word. Again, how do we do that if we don't know God's word and if we're not being bound by God's word and how we present it? Again, in 1 Peter, we can do this, 1 Peter chapter 2, we can do this knowing that we are those who deserve shame, but we will not be put to shame. It says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. One reason why we should hope that wickedness is being shamed is because we pray, just as Luther did, that when the law of God is presented, one of the tools of the law is that people would flee to the arms of Jesus Christ. That they would be shamed, and that they would know that the only place to hide from that shame is to be rooted in the chief cornerstone, chosen and precious. And we are promised In Isaiah 28, and being repeated by Peter and also repeated by Paul in Romans 10, it says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Shame is coming. Judgment is coming. That is what Paul was presenting to them here when he was trying to present his case. He comes back and he talks about the resurrection and the judgment to come, the shame that is to come. But the Jesus that he is preaching, if we run to him in confession and hope, we will not be put to shame. This was a promise prophesied by Isaiah and is established and fulfilled by the work of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 2, we are again reminded by this wit- these witnesses of the great witness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The work of Jesus Christ there at the cross, putting aside all of the charges against us, all of the judgment against us, despising the shame. He was saying, no, your shame is not going to come to me. When he was on the cross, he was defeating shame for himself and for everyone else. All of the, I mean, for all the ones who believe in him, all of the people who, pres- who were watching the presentation of the cross, they were like, that is shame. But he was, no, it was in that he defeated shame because he is now, because of that, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. <coughs> and then lastly, out of Romans, therefore, since we are just, that we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That this shame is a part of the glory of God. Not that it's going to come upon us, but that it will come upon wickedness. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We are to proclaim the hope and the glory of the shaming of wickedness, if anything, to encourage and provoke people to come in confession of sin and in faith in Christ to the arms of Jesus Christ. We should hope and proclaim the coming shame. And we should tell people we deserve that shame too. But because of Jesus Christ, We now have hope. And here you may see us suffering, but we hope in that suffering we take no shame in the suffering for Jesus Christ because he despised it and he destroyed it on the cross because he loved us. Let us pray.